This is Foreign, Domestic and Forbidden, a podcast about books and ideas. I'm Tim Trash. Hi, I'm Joaquin Lobo. And this is our 10th episode. We made it into double digits, Joaquin. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm scared now. 10 episodes. That's amazing. You know, first <laughs> we said that the first thing we said when we talk about the podcast was that we were going to do 10 episodes. Um, but I think we're enjoying this very much. I don't see this episode as being the last one. I hope not. No, I, I really hope not. Why else I come and invade your home and tie you to your chair and, and you have to talk? <laughs> well, ten, 10 is a good number. And, um, and I need a good number. I mean, I'm not interested in numerology. I think that a lot of people place a lot of meaning in numbers. But I like 10. 10 is a solid number. And I like that for 10th episode, we have a really terrific guest. Um, I like to welcome to Foreign Domestic and Forbidden a really good friend of mine, a terrific writer uh, who's published a great collection of short stories that I read many, many years ago, uh, We Should Never Meet, uh, that I absolutely recommend to everyone. And she also is the author of a great novel called The Reeducation of Cherry Trunk that I actually used in one of my, my courses. My students read that novel also quite a few years ago. And Amy Fine is joining us for the 10th uh, episode of Foreign Domestic and Forbidden. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joaquin and Tim. Um, and I still remember visiting your class um, and having such a wonderful discussion with your students. Yeah, it was a good discussion. Yes. And I, I think it's one of the very few times where I had, uh, maybe the only time actually, that I had a colleague coming to visit one of my classes. Oh, then I'm honored. <laughs> it just made sense to me. Oh, and, um, you know, I I also appreciate very much that, that you are joining us because um, I haven't seen you in a while. I see you in work-related activities at the college. I, I always see you online, and now I'm seeing you online, but it's nice to meet you and talk to you outside of the context of, of the college where we teach, California College of the Arts. Yes, yes, I agree. One day we'll all see each other in person and <laughs> very surprising. I hope so. Yeah, although although I was just talking the other day to, to some friends of mine, and. It's so shocking to me now that the mask mandate has been lifted to see naked faces again. <laughs> I was yesterday at Costco and I was walking through the aisles and whenever I saw somebody without a mask, I was, oh no, they're naked. And and, <laughs> and, and really try to sort of steer clear of them. It The, the non-masked people are really freaky to me right now. And I think it, it'll take me several months probably to get over that, so. I agree. I, I, it'll, it, it'll take time for the, the non-maths. I actually went to, um, there's this wonderful movie. I know we're not, we're not supposed to be recommending at this point, but it was called Everything Everywhere All at Once with Michelle Yeoh. Oh. And there was a preview of it at the Castro on Sunday night. Mm -hmm. And so my friends and I were wondering, should we go? It's 1400 other people. We all have to be masked. Wow. We all have to, um, show our vaccination cards, but we said, yes, let's go. Wonderful movie, really interesting politics and um, ideas throughout it, but uh, the cast was unmasked. And then just yesterday we learned that Michelle Yeoh was diagnosed with COVID. Ooh. Oh no. <laughs> so luckily everyone was masked and we were far enough away in the theater, but it reminds yeah. you that it's, it's not, it's still here. Yeah. It's present, even though we're, we're still trying to engage. And, and I'm still very happy I went. Um, it was my first time in a theater since yeah. pandemic. Yeah. So, I've, I've been to the movies only once in a very tiny theater in Sebastopol. And people, people took the time, like, so they would lower their masks because there were still mandates. And then they would eat for an hour, like five kernels of popcorn just to keep the masks down. And... I was freaking out. I, 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 there were only 
15 people maybe in the theater, but even so I was, I was, I had a hard time containing myself and, and staying there and not just leaving and saying, all right, that's, that's not for me. Um, but yeah. Um, I've decided that I love the movie so much that I've been to the, to, to see films like 10 times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I used to go like three times a week before the pandemic. Wow. And my favorite thing to do was to get on board and go to the Embarcadero Cinema and right there in the financial district uh, in mm. San Francisco. And that place is another casualty of the pandemic. It closed. I no longer have the Embarcadero Cinemas. It makes me really sad how many theaters have closed. And that was why it was also so beautiful to be in the Castor Theater. It is a yes, gorgeous theater. And it was a very special movie because it was a movie with a largely all Asian cast, right? Um, dealing with the multiverse. And really? it was such oh. joy in that theater, um, so much shared laughter that mm. only the people in the theater could share with each other. Um, and so it reminded me why the theater experience is so important and how even though it's been really nice to stream everything and have everything from our homes that that felt irreplaceable that that um, engagement with um, society and and um, experiencing and understanding and feeling that gratitude of like this I'm not the only one feeling this in this moment of um, of understanding the nuances of the film and what they were trying to say about, you know, being a, um, being Asian, being Chinese, being, um, you know, facing a lot of questions. And then, you know, with the larger question of how are you going to save the world? <laughs> how are you going to save the multiverse and, yeah. you know, save your daughter? Can't wait to watch the film. That's interesting because I've been thinking about that a lot because of the confirmation, the hearings in the Senate for uh, Judge uh, uh, Jackson uh, right. for the Supreme Court of the U.S. And I've been I've been following most of the hearings, um, and I have like many of us have been disgusted by the way Republicans question her. Right during these hearings, but there was a moment yesterday when I uh, heard uh, Senator Cory Brooks uh, talking about what does it mean for him as an African American politician to see uh, this African American woman uh, in that seat uh, going to the process of the confirmation, the hearing, and the confirmation to take a seat in the Supreme Court. And, um, it, you know, I think a lot of people felt very moved because there was the sense that the value that that had for African-American people in the US was so uh, great. And, and they they experienced this, this joy that was uh, sort of, the rest of us could relate to that joy, especially if you are not, uh, you know, a white American. Maybe we cannot feel it with that intensity. Maybe you need to be black to feel, you know, the entire uh, richness of, of that joy. Mm. And when you talk about, you know, uh, film with Asian American actors and a lot of people in the audience from, you know, several uh, Asian backgrounds and, and that sort of sense of community. I feel that's so important these days. Mm -hmm. We have been alone for a long time. That's also true. And um, I think we're only now starting, I don't know, we're, it's gonna take a long time for us to understand how, um, how this has changed us. Like it's changed us immensely, um, how we look at the world, how we interact um, and um, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping it's showing how sturdy we are, and that we can survive this, and that we can come out stronger for this. Um, but we've had so many dark moments. Yeah. Also, had, what's like, interesting about the pandemic is that this is one of the first times that everyone is going through that collective trauma, regardless of national origin. True. I don't think anything this large, right? Right. No. Nope. Affected so many people that everyone can relate to it. 
Well, maybe a war, you know, right now we're going through another war and, you know, this is affecting a lot of people. And I think that you can relate to that if you went to the Cold War and you have that fear and that uh, justified anxiety of a lot of people are suffering and the threat of nuclear war. I think a lot of us are, you know, can relate to that. But I'm also thinking, and going back to, to your first collection of short stories, your first book, I wonder how this refugee crisis that's happening right now with more than 3 million people leaving Ukraine and finding refuge in Poland, in Romania, in Hungary, in so many places in, in Central Europe, has that somehow created some kind of reflection that takes you back to the experience of your family uh, dealing with the Vietnam War how many decades ago? I mean, almost 50 years ago, right? I think um, what I see a lot is whenever there is a, a refugee crisis, there is, you know, I'll sometimes get invitations to write an essay or write an op-ed or, you know, a dear friend will, another Vietnamese American writer, um, because I think in uh, the American public conscious, there is such an awareness that was that was the first refugee exodus. That was the first war that was really on television and that was in the mainstream consciousness of America. And so it seems very fitting that if something is happening today that echoes that, people want to understand um, how those two, in a way, compare. How do they relate? How do they show that we have not really progressed that much in history in terms yeah. of uh, warfare, in terms of diplomatic relations, in terms of um, respecting boundaries and respecting um, other people. So certainly, um, not just Ukraine, although there's some very interesting, I think, conversations that I've been um, listening to about uh, the reason why people seem so startled and and they should be, um, and upset about seeing this influx of Ukrainian refugees is because um, the world is not used to seeing refugees who are not people of color, right? It's as if like that's not supposed to happen to white people right. and <laughs> yeah. to yeah. and yeah. brown people. And so that becomes, it becomes in a way much, uh, uh, it, it takes on, uh, complicated nuances where black and brown people can say, really, <laughs> you know, um, what when you think of a refugee, what do you see? What do you imagine in your head? Right. So I'm certainly thinking and the stories that have been coming out about Ukraine, like the the people who are who just got married and now have to go fight in a war. Right. The uh, the schools that have shut down, um, the families that are being pulled apart, the responses of other countries. Um, to take in refugees, but also create infrastructures for them, right? Um, because it's not just, it doesn't stop with taking in a refugee. Like that is uh, that years and decades of consequences. But there was a story that my, my daughter and I were listening to yesterday that reminded me of another refugee crisis that we had forgotten about, and that was Afghanistan, right? Yeah. Yesterday, girls were supposed to be able to return to schools that had been the promise by the Taliban government. And then the promise was rescinded. And these girls who had had all their hopes about going to school, gotten all ready, have been waiting months, months for this for this return, um, were told that the infrastructure wasn't created. They were, it wasn't, um, a safety plan wasn't available for them to attend school and they didn't know when it would be in place. Um, and that felt for me crushing because we're not thinking about Afghanistan right now, right? We're not thinking about the refugees. We're not thinking about um, the people who were left behind there. And yet that was so important when it happened in that moment months ago, right? To think about what was going to happen to all the women and the refugees and all the people who were uh, afraid of the persecution of the Taliban. So that on top of the, the crisis in Ukraine that is continuing, I am constantly being reminded about how we are surrounded, how we are all refugees, and how difficult it is to continue to um, convey the message that um, refugees have rights. They have, they they should be able to, you know, have the 
the same basic rights as almost every other human, as every other human in this world. And the fact that they have to fight for that and the fact that we have to argue for it, the, fight, the fact that we have to write about it to convince people of humanity, of other, of other humans is um, incredibly dispiriting. So yeah, so this this it's it's been weighing on me like just um, all um, all these different issues and how continually shocked people seem to be that like oh history is repeating itself right what have we learned um, what have we learned from any of this yeah hmm. yeah that that rings really true um, and and it's something I think also that that comes with age <laughs> really like to see just these, these things repeating. Um, to me, it's really weird because I grew up in Germany in the eighties. We were all convinced that like an armed conflict between the superpowers somewhere on European soil was inevitable. It would happen sooner or later. And, and we, we, we had the invasion of Afghanistan, like we had proxy wars all over the world, basically between the superpowers. And then perestroika happened, Gorbachev happened, and now we're back, really back into back to the 80s and we have proxy wars and we're getting ready to, to fight on Ukrainian soil, not with our soldiers, but with our weapons. And so, we we haven't learned anything really like we're we're still where we were in the 80s and it feels very very frustrating to me that we haven't advanced and and what you said also about oh yeah there are white people that are refugees you know and and they share a religion with sort of most of the western countries and and that's why we're suddenly oh they're they're good refugees, or we want them, or uh, Europe isn't shy about letting them in, but it was different when it was Syrian refugees and everybody was afraid. And, and so it, it, I, this is nothing against Ukrainian refugees, like, like far from it, but, but it's, it's strange to see how differently we treat refugees or how we evaluate their right to come to a new country and be integrated into society. I become very impatient with the idea of the way America assesses and that idea, right, of the good refugees, who is allowed to come in, yeah. right? Um, and this assumption of even though white Europeans invaded this land in order to seize it, they get to determine the borders, they get to determine who gets to come in, yeah. who gets to stay. And we're still fighting to, you know, um, have reparations available for the black Americans who were brought here against their will and for the indigenous people who were unjustly murdered and um, their cultures removed and driven off their land. I mean, there's just, um, it is, it is, it becomes um, so complicated. I have um, this wonderful student right now. She's Russian. She is um, an individualized major. And uh, when, uh, when Ukraine was invaded, she couldn't come to class. And I totally understood why, but I, she, she's such a, an incredible student, um, so full of life and so curious. And she was trying to explain to me the shame she was feeling in trying to understand. Like she said, we we've done so much to to redeem ourselves on this in, in this world. And and she 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 came to realize that it, it it was up to arts and literature in order to redeem the humanity of the Russian people, right? For 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 her and for other artists and writers to separate themselves from what the government was doing, that it is not Russia doing this, it is Putin. Um, and that literature is an act of um, creating another voice, um, of um, redeeming and uh, bringing back the humanity of the Russian people, which she's very proud of. And, um, that's, and so, that's a, yeah. yeah. That's a really good point. And I, I just remember that he probably the last issue of the New Yorker, a uh, writer from Ukraine that I, I'm reading him right now, uh, novelist, and I like him a lot because he's exactly my age. 
Like he looks like a wolf, but he would be an Ukrainian wolf and I'm a Mexican wolf. <laughs> Andrei Kurkov. Andrei Kurkov. I'm, I, I'm just, I just finished reading this morning, Death and the Penguin. And I'm going to get started with a sequel to that novel that's called Penguin Lost. Uh, this guy is brilliant. And he just wrote a really heartbreaking um, um, essay for the New Yorker talking about Ukraine and, and Russia and the war and, and you know, his, his take on the war as a novelist. And what you said, Amy, it's so pertinent and so important to remember uh, that this is a war that's being waged not by the Russian people, but by, by the government and the top military. Not even those thousands of, you know, Russian soldiers that have been killed in Ukraine, in a way it was not their war. They were sent to be butchered um, by, by Putin. They're talking about 15,000 dead people when the war in Afghanistan many years ago, the toll was only like six or 7,000 for the entire war. So, you know, in the first month of war, Putin already lost twice as many Russian soldiers. And to me, what that means is that the way in which writers and artists think about war, it's something that we don't really hear about. You know, we're like secondary actors in these conflicts, and it takes a lot of time for people to look at what writers in particular and you know, filmmakers and so on, the way they relate to these uh, military conflicts. And my question to you, Amy and, and Tim is, as writers, as, as novelists, as fiction writers, what do you think that you know, we, we, we do with these, these type of conflicts? Is this something that, to which you react immediately? Or is this something that just stays there waiting to be processed? Well, I think what technology might be on our side this time. Whereas before I feel writers needed writers and filmmakers needed time to incubate, take in the experience, be able to process it and write something, right? And that can take years, as we know. It can take years to publish a book or make a film but it doesn't take years to write, um, to participate in social media or do a podcast. Where those ideas, where those insights, like your podcast can come out, where you can hear writers and artists speak in real time their thoughts on this and their insights on this. Before, I think we did have to wait a long time and, and it will be interesting to see with this quicker turnaround with technology, how can writers and artists participate more in the conversation um, and in um, influencing public opinion about it? That, that is a point that, that's really, really interesting to me because sometimes I feel what you describe, while well, writing is a, is a very long process, publishing is an even more, an even longer, more archaic process and it takes several years to get anything out there and, and maybe have an impact. And how do you see sort of the relationship, like where, where the chances of writers and writing influencing public opinion? What, when, when have you seen that sort of in the last few years that, that an essay or a piece of fiction had an effect beyond a, a small circle of people or like that it went out and, and actually brought about change? And, and how do you see that that can maybe happen now with social media and everything else? I think also um, more writers, I think, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Viet Thanh Nguyen, right? When the sympathizer came out, I think no one, was very, he's such an interesting, um, leader in Vietnamese American literature because he started as an academic. He started as a critic and, and um, he studied and he knew and he understood uh, the politics and uh, the social, uh, the social political background and history and um, uh, the potential of it. So he came in with this like big brain already, right, to <laughs> understand. And so when his book 
you know, uh, very, um, very rightly so kind of blew up and became such a part of the public conversation. I think he understood his role that what he could do in terms of articulating and speaking because he was at, he was being asked by all the major outlets to speak like, okay, so what do you think? Like, tell us what you're think you're thinking because they wanted his name, his byline in the newspapers to sell, right? And so he understood the platform and the importance of his platform. Um, and um, he's often asked to speak on these issues. And he he received such a, and, and his, his book is now being made into a television series by HBO. And so in that way, the book has a much larger audience because it's being transformed into other places, right? It will be viewed a lot more as a television series than as a book probably, even though the book has, and the book is now, part book one of a, a trilogy right and so the the influence becomes larger in terms of what an, a, a writer is able to say and be able to to influence public opinion um so there are ways i think writers can be um really smart about it in in, in terms of articulating her voice I, and i have a friend vanessa hua who is also a writer um she's coming out with her third book next month um and she, it, which is about uh, chairman mao and she had the opportunity to write a weekly column for the Chronicle a few years ago. And mm -hmm. the stories were originally very much, you know, neighborhood uh, family life uh, pieces. But she's also had the opportunity to speak on societal issues and to speak about things that are happening in the world. Um, and that became a platform. Right. So there are ways that I think writers, they have more opportunities now, especially with podcasts, especially with social media to to be able to not have to wait in between books to be able to say something we'll mm -hmm. all still we'll still continue the books are our first love right that is where we find the most joy that's where yeah. we find the most um comfort but these other places are ways for us to be able to to continue um allowing our ideas to form and to try them out and to formulate them and to engage with more people and at the same time providing a different point of view, because traditionally we've only read the books written by the Europeans and the Americans. When we talk about, for instance, Second World War, you know, we have an entire canon of, I'm thinking Kurbanica and Slaughterhouse-Five. When we talk about the Vietnam War, we're thinking of dispatches and we're thinking about the things they carried, you know, Tim O'Brien. But we readily had the opportunity to read, you know, the books from the other uh, perspective, from the Vietnamese perspective. I'm thinking of recent narratives that deal with the war of Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, for instance. We have an entire body of work written by journalists and soldiers who, who went to Iraq and went to Afghanistan. But it hasn't been until recently that we had, you know, I just thought in the past, yearbooks by Iraqi writers. One of them uh, is The Baghdad Clock by Shahad al-Rawi, so a young woman from, from uh, Baghdad who wrote a book that's very much connected to, to, the Iraq, uh, to, to the American invasion of Iraq. And there's a great novel by another Iraqi writer, Ahmed Sadawi, who wrote Frankenstein in Baghdad, that also deals precisely with the, the, the American invasion of Iraq using the uh, metaphor of Frankenstein to talk about the destruction of the city. And, you know, the sympathizer is also a magnificent example of, you know, how to look at very specific conflict from a different perspective. Yeah, I was actually thinking about um, probably my, the most influential work that I read um, in the last few years was the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferrante. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it, it, the work is stunning in terms of how small the world is when she first created it in that book, and then how much she's able to cover, how much she's able to expand to show that these two girls and their very, you know, their relationship in this small town is so completely controlled by these larger global factors. And you have to be as a reader patient and as a writer, even more patient to start with the tiny world and for it to expand and grow larger. And for us to realize as readers, this growing dread and fear and understanding that um, these young girls 
trying to fight for their and making very different choices are ultimately constricted by such larger uh, geopolitical forces. Um, and there's only so much they can do. And, it, and they show in these two characters that it is still possible, even with every possible opportunity, luck, privilege, you can still feel trapped. Um, you can still feel overwhelmed by by what's happening out in the world. Um, but it, 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 it ha she, she writes about it in such a beautiful, compassionate way, a stunning like way. Are you watching the HBO series? I am, I think it's excellent. It is really, it's really good. It, it, I, it, it, it just is so, um, I think, gratifying when you see that filmmakers can be as patient and methodical in honoring a work and really understanding and seeing a work. I mean, we've seen plenty of terrible adaptations, but there was, there, there seems such a conscious adherence to the writer's point of view that I think, um, you know, that's every writer's dream, right? To be able to, to see to, to, um, and experience that, you know, your world being treated so respectfully and so um, honorably. So the one thing that, that, that always gives me a little bit of heartburn is that at least in America, books don't really get to be very important unless they are made into an HBO series or a movie. <clears throat> that the biggest compliment for a writer is that their work was adapted for television mm. or, or the big screen. And and sometimes I, 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 I sometimes I'm just like okay that's that's what it is that's that's how we work so so that's fine and in other times I'm a little bit frustrated that a lot of books seem to be written in order to be made into screenplays I mean mm -hmm. the whole works of of Nicholas Sparks I mean he basically wrote scripts and and. Uh, I mean, we don't have to talk about Nicholas Sparks, but 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 the thing is that that we're 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 often not talking about the books, but we are starting to talk about the movies, and that there was also a book that was pretty okay. Is that in America sort of the only way to attract the attention and get sort of the platform to to convey messages that you? that you have that book deal and it goes out and, and people watch it? I think it's such a, I totally understand how this is a huge concern. And I think it has to do with just the specific time we're in right now mm -hmm. um, with the explosion of streaming content and they need yeah. content. And so that is why they're looking to literature, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's also because we've been in our houses for two years. And so, uh, and people are desperate to escape their minds and yeah. consciousness. And some people, it was really easy for them to turn to literature during this time and others who felt really exhausted. And so it is, I'm not sure it's gonna last. I don't think you're ever going to be able to replace the experience of a complete immersion in a novel. I don't, um, even though I really admire some successful adaptations, I still, I still can remember where I sit when I'm reading a specific passage in a book, mm. where I'm so close to a character, to a moment, and experiencing that epiphany or that is despair with them. Like I remember exactly where I am, and it will always supersede what I see. I think on a screen, right? Because that is the opposite of what I was describing about the the shared experience in the Castro Theater. There's nothing better that I think for, you know, for your brain and for your heart to experience a moment with a character in a book and to realize and marvel at the writer's patience about formulating the words to get you to that moment. But yes, streaming content is for real. <laughs> writers <laughs> are, it, it is not like every writer I think is writing for streaming content. No. Um, I do no. think many of my students, the way their brains work right now, the no. way they see narratives are very visual. I, I also teach at, teach at an arts college where their brains, they, they, they need to be able to, in a way, like see it in their heads. And this is why we have, I think, uh, where, where they connect right now at this moment 
is with works that do both. But I don't think it's exclusive. I don't think they would reject, um, they wouldn't be open to a book. There are plenty of series that my kids have read that have never been adapted and they still adore them. And they still have a very vivid uh, picture of it in their heads without, without a streaming content. That topic's make, that, it makes me very jealous and very angry because I, I, I hate it that no one has come you know, to ask for the rights to make adaptations of my books into films or, 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 or TV series. So I think that my books would be very good for- Just wait, just be patient. There, yeah, I know, when I die, time. when I die, I'm gonna be famous. Really <laughs> it just drives me crazy. The other thing is that I talk to my, I have friends who are very famous who've made, you know, their, their books have been made into movies or who have written, uh, screenplays for very big films in Hollywood, and I feel that that the writing is not as good because of that. To be honest, I feel that they, in a way, write just for the for the for the big screen. They're not they're not writing like novelists write. Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe that's kind of a consolation because I'm very jealous that my books are not being made into movies. Maybe I'm thinking, well, you know, their books are being made into movies, but they're not very good writers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I honestly think that you find a refuge in your pain and, and you probably commit even more thought and energy to writing literature, uh, literary fiction when you are not writing for an agent, when you're, you're not writing for a, for a producer? Mm -hmm. I don't think, I, when I think about the very best passages of literature that I've read, it is not often a description of something visual, of an action. It is very often a character insight. It's the interior. Mm -hmm. And the world has to be built around that moment. And I think it's very difficult to capture that on film or television. And that's, like I said, that is where I feel closest to the characters. That is where I feel the most rewards when I read, is um, feeling so close to someone and understanding and feeling like I know this person, I understand their pain. And I am experiencing that, that empathy, that deep empathy you can only get, I think, from literature. That's a really cool observation that it's the non-visual moments that make a book a book. And I think that's very, very true because books can do so much more than give us images. What you observed about students, I think I share, a lot of my students are inspired in their writing by television, by movies they've seen and, and borrow characters. But, but to watch a character do something that doesn't translate into any image is always really thrilling. Um, last year, I read a lot of Orhan Pamuk's novels and I have a hard time imagining a movie <laughs> of, of any of his books because there's so much interiority, so much writing that is writing and, and can't be translated and is part of the character's journey, like in the Black Book, there are all these vignettes, these columns by his relative, and th there's no translation on the screen for any of that. It wouldn't work. And, and that always thrills me when I see moments that can't be translated into any other medium, not at all. I mean, it doesn't work in any, in any other form. Yeah, I think about one of my very favorite writers is um, Ishiguro. Oh, yeah. And why do I love him? I, I love him because of the way he's able to slowly, you know, create prose of an interior monologue of characters who are not yet completely aware of the sadness they are in. They, how do you, con and, and that is something that is very non-visual. We are, um, he creates this train of thought and we get to follow it of a very specific point of view of characters trying to understand um, and talk through their experiences. And we as readers gain more knowledge about it and we're able to see a larger picture than, than the character within it. But that's that's the beauty and also the 
the pain in reading him, I think, is when when people are trying to articulate their sadness and, and they, but they don't yet fully realize it. But we as readers feel we do. Yeah, that reminds me of, you know, what Robert Frost said about poetry, that poetry is what gets lost in the translation. Like you could, you know, pretty much say something similar about, about the writerly aspect of a book that gets lost in the translation into the visual narrative. But there is this essence, this, I don't know, essence of horrible, you know, kind of obnoxious, pretentious word, but there is something about about the text that cannot be turned into, into a visual equivalent. Yeah. Just like when you translate from one language, from, from the Italian into English, from the Spanish into French, from and Russian into German, you cannot translate the poetry. You translate something, but you cannot translate the poetry. Right. There is a very intimate quality that's you know, very complex and very human and that has to do Maybe what you just mentioned, that thing that that you cannot even put into words. Mm-hmm. And I wonder now that the pain of, you know, going back to Ukraine and what you said, Amy, about the invisible pain of other refugees, the invisible pain of other people going through similar experiences, not just now, but in the past 20, 30 years. How do you translate that into empathy when empathy is so limited and so selective? It's, it's amazing to me how we're always turning to writing in all, in all forms in order to remind people to feel empathy for each other. That we, it, is a, it seems like a task that we have to perform over and over again. Like we have to continuously earn, um, earn this empathy. I feel like it's something I want to teach my children about so much. Um, in terms of being generous with it. Why does someone have to prove uh, their pain and suffering for you to want to help them, right? That is why I I think I marvel at the people who are always like the first responders, the first to volunteer, um, the first to offer help immediately without questions, right? Without sometimes even knowing all the circumstances, but just knowing you need help. We're gonna give it to you. This is, this is the only reason I'm here um, in this country is because there were many people in this country actually who saw the humanity and wanted to help, right? In the Vietnamese refugees, for the Vietnamese refugees. That is why I'm here. Um, so I have to be, and I am grateful for all the, the people who didn't know me, who didn't know my parents, knew nothing about us. We didn't have to prove ourselves. They said, you, you, need, you need a home, you need shelter, you need a new life, and we're going to help give it to you. I'm, I'm amazed by these people um, and how they continue to work through this um, and, and want to continue to help. I wish there were more people like that. If there were more, I think things would be really different. <laughs> thank, yeah. goodness, thank goodness they're here. Yeah. Thank goodness they're, um, they're here and they, they have their ideas and they, they're, they're what help you know, keep humanity around, keep us, keep us going. Do you think that something like that, what happened in the case of your family, is it still possible in these times where we have a very different relationship to information? Because I feel that what happened back in the day with the Vietnam War is that, you know, we didn't, it was the first war that was televised, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't have internet, we don't have cell smartphones. And now I feel that our relationship to events is very different. It's it's immediate, but then you move on to the next thing right away. You scroll down and you move on to the next thing, right? Right. So that ability to keep a consistent level of empathy and compassion, I don't think that is exactly the same as it was 50 or 60 years ago because our relationship to information has been perverted. Right. It's being tested, right? Yeah. Can you, can you still do it? Can you maintain the, the focus and attention? And I'm, and, and I'm saying this because I'm afraid that 
you know, a month from now, Ukraine is just going to be like, we're going to get used to that. Uh-huh. And we're going to forget about Ukraine because, you know, we have other things to worry about. I've seen that happen. Yeah. I wonder about that too. Um, I, I hold hope that there is just so much concern globally about what's happening. And there has been such an interesting, like Switzerland took sides. That was a surprise to me. Yes. You know? Germany, you know, Germany was also a big surprise. Exactly. The, the fact that the money drained so quickly, you know, in terms of companies pulling out, that says a lot. That hurts more than other things. Money hurts a country more than most anything, right? So there's hope in that. Yeah, whether it sustains the fact that we hadn't thought about Afghanistan in so long, right? There is there is a, an attention uh, span that is concerning. So I am curious to know, because so much of our, I think, uh, because we've gone through the pandemic, we're still going through this pandemic. We have this shared fear, I think, in the world in terms of like um, how easily it can be to, how easily it is for your life to be disrupted and how things can be shut down so quickly. I don't think most people um, in America in the last few generations understood that. Now we have all gone through it. So I was trying to explain this to my kids like, you know, yes, the worst thing that's ever happened to us is that we had to stay inside our houses and you couldn't have your activities. Now imagine that your house was taken away and you weren't in your house. You weren't around your friends and you weren't sure if you were ever gonna go back to your home again. That's another step of compassion and empathy that's required. And hopefully more people are able to take that step now that we've gone through the first one. Yeah, these, these past two years have also taught me how, how difficult it is for us to really imagine the worst or that we've come actually to a point where there is no return. I, I, I think it's, 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 it's partly a lack of imagination, but also we don't want to be so vain as to say, oh my God, we live in historic times and, and over-exaggerate because in our culture, I think, it's frowned upon to make too much of a situation to, but now we're coming really to a point um, with environmental disasters, a very, very shaky political situation and the pandemic where we're like, no, this is really as bad as it is. And we have to take very, very drastic measures. And I think we're still waffling at this moment. We're still not totally committed to to join in and say, okay, we need to do something really, really decisive in order to save water, to save energy, um, all these things. We're still like, oh, maybe we can still continue on for 10, 20, 30 years. Maybe we don't have to do anything right now. But more and more, I think people see, no, this is the moment to act. There, we, we can't afford to sit back and and wait another day or another week or another year because it, it it'll be too late but but it's really this this odd moment like when you realize as a kid that you're mortal and you're not going to live forever and in then what do you do exactly with it and so it's this 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 unified gasp i think we're hearing right now and each and every one will find their own solution but we really need to work together very quickly and very drastically in order to to get away for to buy ourselves a little bit more time on this planet. Right. When when did you realize that you were mortal, Tim? That seems like five, five, five or six. But how? That's. I, I, mean... I was I was lying in my bed at night. My parents were in the next room watching television and I was imagining how I would be dead and lying in my grave and I would be looking down on the people who would come to my grave and then I was suddenly well there's nobody looking actually because you're dead and and I was suddenly aware of there is not even a thought connecting me to the world anymore there is no memory 
no thought, nothing. I'll be just gone completely. And I won't know even that I'm gone. I'm just gone. And that freaked me out. And it's still freaking me out, really. <laughs> that, that very moment you became a writer, you know? That's when you became a novelist. I became very afraid, that's for sure. <laughs> no, because writing is a way of not dying, you know? Writing is, is this attempt at, at remaining, at being pertinent, yeah. at being alive, at, 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 you know, recovering memory. There's a, a lot of things. I don't know what it is. I agree. But, no, yeah. that's a great description. It is our act of, it is our contributions to this world, right? What we put down on paper, what we write, whenever we do that, and we're able to share it, we're contributing to the act of life and how we respond to it and what we believe in it. Did you have that realization of mortality, Amy, at some point? I've had multiple ones. Like also I was raised Catholic, so it was skewed for a long time. But I remember when I was little and I'm being very upset about the idea of my father dying because I was very close to my father. And he had made, he made me a promise. He said, I'm not dying. <laughs> he said, I won't because you want me here. And it was this moment of being, I was, I was totally assured. I was like, okay, he made this promise to me. That he, because that was the thing I feared, I think, the most in the world mm. was being away from him. And, and now when I look back at it, I'm so happy he made that promise to me at that moment. Because I needed it. I needed to hear that because there was, there is, it's so crippling, this fear. It's so crippling. And honestly, sometimes it feels like such a waste of time. Like, we don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I need to do other things besides, um, Worrying up, and, and I, you go through that, like, you know, our children have varying, to be able to see your child go through that, that fear and that, um, that sadness of either you dying or them dying, uh, it is my, I feel like it is like a parent's responsibility to be able to help them be okay with it. It also provide the lies necessary for them to not think about it at that moment and to be able to process it later, to be able to make the most of your time here. So when I became okay with my mortality was when I had kids, was when I realized, and but then that's also its own fears of like, you know, I, I realize I'm an extension of my father. I think like him. I talk like him. I laugh like him. Um, and I see that in my kids too, you know? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a parent-child thing. It, it is how you affect any other human being. And as writers, we do that. We write our thoughts and they get read, they get received, they get absorbed by other people who you don't even know, right? Um, but they're carrying your ideas, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. Um, one of the, my favorite experiences as a writer was a few years ago, I went up to Portland to speak at a community college and they had read my book. And there was a woman around my mother's age and she kind of pulled me aside after the reading to sit down with me. And then she opened her copy of my book and she had written on every single page, like oh, no wow. responses to me. And I just, I was so overwhelmed. And so, and I felt so grateful to her that she had spent, and this book was over like, you know, it was almost, it was a lot of years, like 15 years since I had written it. And the fact that she was engaging with every single line and wanted to talk to me about these things felt like the greatest gift. It, it, it truly did that she, she was thinking about everything I was saying and she was taking it so seriously. And it had uh, moved her that much that she had wanted to talk to me on every page of my book and wanted to talk to me afterwards about these things. Um, writers, we don't, have, we don't often get to see that other side of it, that there are readers who are, who are absorbing our writing that intensely. We write with such despair sometimes where we're like, will this make the light of day? Will this sentence be erased tomorrow? Will this whole manuscript not work out? And then we just have to have the faith to keep going and to keep trying, right? Yeah. On that note, it is time for the foreign, domestic, and forbidden recommendations. Try at your own risk. Oh, Amy, wow. what would you like to recommend? 
Well, I had I, I listed some of my recommendations. So let me think about what has had the most effect on me. Um, I'm going to recommend a cookbook. Oh, um, cool. Yes. Very cool. Uh, like many people during the pandemic, I had my sourdough starters. <laughs> different and now I can't even make bread because it reminds me too much of the early days of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have lots of yeast to give away now because I'm never going to make this. Um, there's this wonderful uh, chef um, and a cookbook writer named Kenji Lopez-Alt. He wrote for, he, 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 he contributes recipes and articles to the New York Times, but I think he started at, I think it was, was it Serious Eats? He's wonderful to listen to and engage with. And he engages in recipes that we're thinking about, especially here in the Bay Area. And he recently created his own adaptation of the, the Vietnamese garlic noodles. Mm -hmm. that people love here. Wow. And that my children love. Um, but the reason why I like his writing and his recipes is just the way he engages with culture um, mm -hmm. and food and what we think of it. And he really seems to understand um, the comfort and the excitement food can offer and the, uh, that cooking can offer um, and how it creates a community. So he, his book is called The Walk. Um, cool. and it just came out. Thank you. Thank you very much. Joaquin. I am going to recommend writers from Iraq uh, that I mentioned before. One of them is Ahmed Sadawi, Frankenstein in Baghdad. Uh, the Baghdad clock that I taught uh, last semester in one of my classes by a young woman, Shahad al-Rawi. And another woman that I am just began reading, she's also about my age, uh, she's from Ukraine, uh, Oksana Sabushko. Oksana Sabushko. Um, I didn't know anything about... Uh, Ukrainian women writers until I started to do my homework. And I also purchased another book that uh, I think Andre Kurk recommended uh, by Maria Matios. So hopefully by the next time we meet, I'll be able to, to tell you, Tim, uh, what happened with, this, with these books. But it seems like an important thing to do these days to read Ukrainian writers. Yes. Cool. Very cool. My recommendation will be the shallow one today. It's a TV show. It's um, eight episodes. It's a Korean drama about a young woman who wants to avenge the death, the killing of her father and joins forces with a crime boss and goes into the police to basically become a mole in the police and find out who killed her dad. It's very boilerplate, the plot. It's, it's nothing you haven't seen before, but the acting is fantastic. And even though the series is at times very, very violent, it's so staged and beautifully choreographed that it's actually beautiful to watch, which is a, usually I don't like saying that anymore. And I can't really watch gory movies anymore either after the pandemic i'm like uh, I'm, I'm done <laughs> but but that one um because of the acting stood out and even though like technically it's 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 very by the numbers it was it was very stunning and beautiful and and almost intimate at times uh, very very cool and um it's called my name and you can catch it on netflix my name yeah, that's it. Thank you, Amy, so much for coming on. So Thank you. This was really lovely. I I really enjoyed this. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's it it was so good to have you. The intro and outro music is by Springtide, and it's their Coney Island train blues, and it comes to us via the free music archive. Thanks so much for listening, and hopefully you will join us again in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye, Joaquin. Bye, Amy. Bye.